Hello, 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 people. This is Vinay, your host for the Shiny Happy People podcast. Welcome back. How's everybody doing? There's a big question mark there, and the only way I'll know is if you write into us. But I hope you're all staying safe and staying interested in what's going on out there. So what's our topic today? We have a guest who's going to join us. We've had a crazy 2020, and I'm not referring to the pandemic, but I'm referring to all the stuff that was happening around diversity, inclusion, equity. Finally, it's come into the forefront. It's something that everybody is talking about all around the world. We had the whole George Floyd, we had Black Lives Matter, you know, stuff that's actually always been around the whole concept of racism and trying to improve all of that for, for years. But I'm hoping that 2020 has been a tipping point and we're actually going to see some sustainable change that is going to happen in this area, much needed. And that's what our topic is going to be all about. As you may have guessed, that's what our guest is also going to be discussing with me on. So right after this break, we have somebody joining us all the way from the US who's going to share with us her experience. She's been in this field for over 20 years, even longer, about what the future is going to look like and how the conversation today has really, really changed. So stay tuned and join us right after this. Okay, folks, we have an awesome guest today on our podcast. Let's welcome Kelly McLeod Shingen, who is the Vice President for Diversity, Equity and Inclusion at the University of Tulsa. She's the president of KMS Intercultural Consulting, which is a global diversity and inclusion uh, organization. She's been working in this area ooh, for about 30 years. Right, Kelly? Welcome mm -hmm. to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me, Vinay. It's it's truly an honor to be here. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. No, it's all uh, it's all mine. And you and I haven't connected in um, we were just discussing before we started recording, right? In over a decade, my God. Yeah, I know. Where yeah. did the time go? <laughs> yes, and it, and it's kind of weird. Uh, the world. I mean, if you take the pandemic out of that, and you can't, but. Without the pandemic, the world has changed a lot, and yet it hasn't changed a lot. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of weird. But yeah. before we get started, um, I just want to let our listeners know that Kelly is also a co-author of the Cultural Detective African-American book. She's a contributing author for the Sage Publications book on prejudice, bias, and discrimination. And she's doing some amazing work. If you follow her on social media, in the last year or so, some of the stuff that she's been putting out caught a lot of my attention, made me really reflect and think. And I said, I've got to have a conversation with Kelly. And finally, I'm <laughs> making it happen. Yay. Yay. Welcome, Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah. So how have you been? How have you been managing through this last 13 months or so of the pandemic? So, you know, it's interesting because... 
I was so incredibly busy from the fall of 2019 into March of 2020. Um, and I was just returning from the forum on workplace inclusion conference in March when the everything shut down, when, when the sky fell is what I like to say. <laughs> and, <laughs> right. And so, oh, apologies for the phone ringing in the background, no but when, when that happened, I literally uh, was incredibly excited that finally I get a break so, because everything stopped. All the work stopped for at least a month. And at that time, I thought I can actually go on vacation because many of my clients were saying, um, you know, we're just going to put this on hold for a few months. We'll give it a break um, and we'll visit again come June. Right. And I thought, wonderful. <laughs> I can stay home. Um, I can be with my family because my husband started working from home at that time. My daughter was doing school from home. Right. Um, so it's pretty, it was pretty awesome at first. And then um, June hit and uh, George Floyd was murdered, brutally murdered, if you yeah. ask me. And, and suddenly the business shifted. Before June, I was, I would have to have the conversations about race and systemic racism very carefully because many organizations didn't want to have that conversation. They weren't ready for that conversation. Um, and then when, when, when George Floyd was murdered, suddenly everyone was ready to, for the conversation and clients started coming out of the woodwork. So I thought I was busy before um, COVID hit. Suddenly, I was busier than I had been, frankly, in years because of the number of requests that I was getting to talk about race and racism. And mm. specifically because I had an internship, um, my graduate internship when I was studying for my master's was at the Center for the Healing of Racism. So a lot of my work spoke from the perspective of healing and the power of story. So um, I will say that it was really... Um, a shift in, in the focus of my work, it moved from intercultural, um, you know, cross-cultural, the appreciation of navigating different cultures to really wanting to get to the heart of um, the pain that diversity uh, experiences can have on people, right? right. So, um, and, and because of that, People were looking for language uh, and they were looking for ways to begin a healing process. How do, how do they learn? So it was, it was a tragic time, but a very busy time. And I was very excited about but it. it but, it, but it was also what I'm hearing you say, it was a busy time, but busy doing very meaningful, critical and impactful work, much needed work, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Very much so. Yeah. yeah. So, so I, I want to come back to the last year, uh, but I want to go back into chronology. So how did you get into the space? You talked about doing your master's, intercultural work. So how did you get into the whole intercultural space? What drew you into the space? Right. So, um, you know, being a storyteller, I don't know how to do this short for you. <laughs> not to give you the snippet, right? So I'll just start from the beginning, frankly, right? So I, I think I've always been a bridge builder. You know, I think I was always that kid on the playground who was trying to explain to everybody, don't fight, you know, let's explain. Well, she, what she was trying to say was this, or what they really mean is that. Um, and so I think I've always been that connector, the one who wanted to, to be a mediator, keeping the peace and explaining the left to the right. Um, 
So when I when I graduated from college or university, um, my very first job was working at a university. And in that position, I was responsible for doing the diversity training for resident assistants in, in the dormitories. And so um, that was one of my first jobs. And, you know, I didn't have the expertise, but I knew that I could have conversations with ease because I did all the time. And um, I communicated across culture pretty regularly. Um, so, so that job then led to other jobs in, in higher education and university settings that were all around diversity, advising the ethnic student groups or doing diversity training or being the director for multicultural services or, you know, working in multicultural and international student services. And when I started for my master's in cross-cultural studies was the first time that I had heard about this intercultural field. I didn't, I hadn't heard of it. All the work that I did around culture was based in diversity work. Um, and it was just diversity then. We didn't add inclusion or equity and inclusion until That's right. Later. Yeah. DEI right? is a more today's term than, right? It was Very DNI. So. It was D, then DNI, and then DEI. <laughs> that is absolutely right. <laughs> and now it's inclusion, diversity, equity, and access. So ideas. And now right. it's so many different names for it now. Um, but when it first started, I was just doing diversity. So when I learned about the intercultural field, that's when I started uh, attending the Society for Intercultural Education Training and Research, the CTAR conferences or gatherings in Houston. Right. Um, and then I learned that there was a national body. And then I learned that there was a global network. So right. uh, I became very involved in CTAR USA and then started attending the Europe conferences and um, you know, just being as active as I could because I love that community. Well, that's how that's where we met through that organization. So, so that that, is that was great. But but you know, it's it's sort of interesting because you talked about the university days, and I always mm -hmm. say universities and campuses and residences are cultural melting pots, right? People coming from everywhere, the world. So it's a great place to start the whole intercultural uh, space, or or just even the diversity space, because those dormitories get very, very interesting because my son's right now studying or was uh, before the pandemic and hopefully you'll get back on campus in Canada. And when I went to drop him off in those dormitories, there were 37 nationalities, uh, people from all over, uh, all races, religions. It was just really fascinating place. And I was so happy that he was going to get that exposure. Mm -hmm. um, so how have you seen, so so let's come back to diversity, equity, and inclusion before we get to idea, right? And, and add access to it. Uh, <laughs> how, how have you seen it evolve? I mean, you kind of alluded to it. I always had this impression that it was there. People knew they needed to do it, but there wasn't, how do I, uh, there just wasn't a compelling reason to tackle it head on, right? They just did the surface. Uh, check of the box and say, yeah, we, we, we think it's important. Let's do something. Uh, would you yeah. agree with that? I mean, for, for almost decades, it has been like that. 100%. It was the take the box, right? And, and when it started, I think it was deeply rooted in just awareness, right? Um, and then I remember probably just at about 2000, when I was starting to study for my master's degree, um, was I encountering 
clients who were saying, you know, I think we got, I think we get it now. I think we know what we're talking about, but what do we do about it? Right. What do we do? How do we, how do we navigate this stuff? Mm. Um, and so, um, so it meant that there were, there, I had to begin to speak differently about this work in ways where I was equipping people with tools so that when I left the room, they would be able to apply some of these concepts and the awareness that they were learning. So, um, so it truly did move away from awareness. I want to say, you know, in the early, late eighties, early nineties, which was my experience um, to people wanting to figure out how do we apply this? So then it became, you know, what are the, the skills? Um, what skills can you give us? And they talked about, you know, learning how to navigate diversity was a soft skill. I remember that was language for a That's while. That's right. You know, yeah, yeah. Soft skills. Um, mm-hmm. And so, um, so then we spent a lot of time trying to equip people with language on how to apply this in their work. Um, and then it became what tools could they use? What, what measurements, you know, existed? What metrics were available? Um, and so I saw that, uh, that movement, and I think we're still seeing it, which is why we continue to add words to the work that we do. Um, so, you know, as you talked about, you know, it was first diversity, and then it became, you know, diversity and inclusion. Um, and, and we were really doing a great job about having a conversation about while diversity may already exist in organizations, sometimes what you're asking people to do is to simply assimilate to the dominant culture. And what we're not doing is paying attention to the value of diversity of thought and what right. that diversity in background and diversity experience and diversity in identity can bring to the table and create innovation and creativity um, and, and, and assist, right? Yeah, I know. And I think it's you, you've hit the nail on the head. They talked about diversity and they said, yeah, we have it, but did they allow diversity to exist as is? versus mm-hmm. try to create a force, an average norm, or whatever you want to call it, right? Uh, right. And I always saw that. And the other thing is, that I remember 15 years ago, and even to some extent, in my part of the world here in Asia, when they say diversity, it becomes gender, right? And it's so much more, uh, yes, that's, of course, important and critical. And there's so many other elements that need to get discussed as well. Yeah. The, the other point you said, right, uh, there was a lot of the skills, etc. One of the things that really annoyed me, because they always talked about individuals being more inclusive and have being diversity focused, but they never really talked about the whole institution being that way. The whole organization, it was always like, yeah, if enough people, individuals do it, the organization will do it and, and yes. just didn't work. And, and yeah. now we hear the concepts of systemic racism, right? Uh, which is, well, it's a system. And, but everybody was talking about, hey, it, it needs to start from the top. It needs to start from the building that whole culture. You can't just allow a few, a few people to go through training and say, yeah, we've done it. I mean, right. it I'm sure it must have frustrated you like crazy through the oh, process. <laughs> And still, right? I mean, you know, because here's the, here's the truth. One of one of some of the work that I've been doing in the last several years has been working with police departments, and and I was so excited to have the opportunity to potentially, you know, um, have an impact on saving lives of people. Right? That was so exciting for me. The work that I would do in police departments has the possibility of saving lives, and so. Um, 
I was very excited about that and, and went through extensive processes and training that went through training the leadership, training, you know, a core team of officers, because I feel like, you know, what is true is that officers will respect messages from other officers versus they versus an outsider. Um, and so training a team to be, you know, so the TTT, right, for the for the officers and so giving them the skills, tools and and whatnot to be able to train other officers around this topic. What I discovered is that while that is incredibly helpful, preparing, you know, this team and having them train other officers in the academy and it, so on and so on, there's still some institutional Stuff that needed to be addressed. There's and, and there are forces outside of the the officers and the leadership within the office that are problematic as well. So, for example, you know some of the um, the unions, the police unions, oftentimes can be very anti some of this mobility work around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so, if if it's not bought in by the culture then it becomes, you know, one-offs. You might have some success, but it won't be a true institutional change. Um, and, and so that, that has been deeply uh, troubling and it's also been deeply politicized. And so when, when you get into the deeper culture of ideology, then it's far more difficult to manage. Yeah, and, it, and it's classical, I mean, if, to be if you want to be objective, it's classical change management challenge, right? It takes yeah. time to change. You've got to have a plan for change. You've got a whole, you know, there's an eight-step process or a seven-step process, and you can't skip steps because you just won't do it. It'll, and people have ignored that as well. You're listening to the Shiny Happy People podcast. Subscribe to us on your favorite platforms. This podcast is sponsored by C2COD, your organizational development consulting partner, bringing people and strategy together. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook using the handle at C2COD and get updates on our upcoming episodes. Yeah, so coming back to uh, the whole last year, George Floyd and everything else. And it's suddenly everybody just woke up and said, oh, we, we got to, this, this has come to a head now. We've got to deal with it. And it's so interesting because while that incident is absolutely horrific, there have been so many other incidents before that, which, so, um, so do you think, and I was reading an article and, and I, do you think the pandemic and the fact that everybody was stuck at home and the mental distractions of work and all of that was gone away that people then actually gave the attention to this that it really deserved? I think that's absolutely right. Absolutely right. You know, people have talked about, you know, in 2020, we were navigating two pandemics, right? Um, racism and the COVID-19. Um, and I think that that's true. It's, it's something that has been um, a global dis-ease, you know, since, since we started moving from our own homes, right? You know, this whole notion of, of uh, co being conquered, colonized, or enslaved, or the process of conquering, colonizing, and enslaving people. 
has provided us with this legacy of racism, frankly. And, and, we, and we are all trying to navigate that. That's why when it happened to George Floyd here in the United States, it set off a global response, you know? Um, and it, it was, show, it, you know, people were protesting literally around the world. People took to the streets in Berlin, in the UK, in South Africa. I mean, this, in, in Brazil. I mean, these are, these are people who understood that experience <clears throat> so well and, and personally that even though it happened in the U.S., they felt the, the familiarity of it in the spaces that they were in. So it's, it's a global pandemic. Yeah, for sure. That's right. That's right. And, and do you think, um, you know, one of my thing is there's so many layers of and types of racism that exists out there. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, and <clears throat> the pandemic brought another one. Right. The economic inequities, uh, the, the haves and have nots. And some of those are actually root causes of all other forms of racism as well. Uh, do you think the message is getting really fragmented? I, I don't know. I'm, uh, the, it's, is the news just picking up the flavor of the day, for lack of a better term? Which uh, I think that the news does that, yes. <laughs> I think that they, you know, they, they chase the story. Um, and, and yet I think that they're people are recognizing that racism isn't, isn't just, you know, white men in hoods, right. burning crosses, right? They're beginning to realize the way that racism is a system and it is by design um, meant to, to keep some people at the bottom and some people at the top. And, and I think that, we're starting to see it. We're starting to see it in, in, in our economic policy, right? right? We're starting to see it in our, in our judicial systems. We're starting to see it in our health inequities. Um, and while people who have been marginalized or, you know, culturally or racially oppressed have been shouting these inequities forever, <laughs> um, people are only now starting to listen, right? And I think that, you know, I don't want to. I don't want to under undervalue or underestimate the power of being able to record things today either. You know, having a camera on our hip all the time. That's right. Um, yeah, is is an incredibly valuable piece of the puzzle to people waking up. Frankly. Yeah. Yeah. No. No. I agree. And to you know, I, I know. But from a global perspective, those inequities, the marginalized populations, the different forms of discrimination and racism, they manifest itself in different ways in different parts of the world. And out here in India, a lot of things bubble to the surface when the lockdown and things here we had how migrant workers were treated. I don't know if that news ever got to uh, the US news, but we had millions of people when lockdown happened, we were just forgotten and not thought of and had to walk home thousands of uh, kilometers. And, uh, and it was just shocking to see. And that's when we realized, you know, are we really looking after certain societies, certain sections of society? And is there really economic inclusion? Uh, mm -hmm. Is it all? And there was an undercurrent of race, religion, caste, you know, all of that stuff that was coming into it. So I, yeah. it, it's, it's definitely brought it to front page. Let's put it that way, right? Uh, mm -hmm. What's the action, though? I mean, yes, I think 
awareness has probably the highest it's ever been. Uh, mm-hmm. you, we probably did in one year more awareness or built more awareness than maybe the last decade, right? Yeah. These, but what's the action? I mean, what's the change? What are you seeing? Oh, well, you know, I, I think that the first shift that I saw was in organizations being willing to say, to hold up the mirror to themselves to say, are we perpetuating racist behavior? And we don't know. And so what do we need to do to be an anti-racist organization, which blew my mind because not only did they not want to talk about race forever, (laughs) you know, I I remember that, you know, if I ever wanted to, right. If I ever wanted to talk about racism, they would say, well, can we, can we talk about discrimination, you know, or can we, can we talk about, um, you know, just general diversity conversation, you know, race is always opening a can of worms, right? And I would say, you know, I think that many of the problems that you have brought to me about what's happening in the organization is about race. And if we can't name it, then we can't change it. So so the fact that institutions first are, are willing to say, we may be perpetuating racism and we don't know it because of our policies and procedures. So what do we need to know, right? Um, The fact that they are open and willing to allow these things called, you know, employee resource groups or affinity groups within the workplace. So the people can gather who are of same or similar culture to talk about how they're navigating the workplace, right? Um, And then also bringing in people to have really specific conversations about what does it mean to be an anti-racist organization and what do we have to do in order to get there? Um, and so I think that I've noticed that that's what is, is beginning to change and what people are willing to do, which they were not willing to do just in early 2019, you know? Right. Um, yeah. So no, I, I hear what you're saying, but you know, I think you and I have been, uh, doing this stuff for a while, right? We, we've seen the waves of this thing. And, and yep. somewhere, and I can't stop the cynic in me uh, popping up saying, how many of them are being authentic and genuine about it or doing it because it's the flavor of the the year or the month, right? And, and I, I know, I, I don't want to take, I, I want to give due credit to organizations and leaders who are genuinely doing it. But I just sometimes, until I see action, you know, literal shifts, I'm wary of it. I, I, you and I have seen enough of these. You know what I mean? That yes. makes sense. <laughs> yes. And I'll tell you, you know, so it's so fascinating. I've been doing independent consulting work for a really long time before I accepted this new position at the University of Tulsa in November. So November of 2020 was when I moved into this role. I've only been in it about five months now. Um, and, I I talk, never... and I want to talk about that, right? How is it being in an academic? So, well, let's finish this and we'll come to that. Sure, sure, sure. But I, I'll never forget early, early last year, I was doing work with a client and the presentation went off without a hitch. Right. People came up afterwards. Oh, this is so valuable. This is amazing. You know, this is before the world shut down. Right. Um, Oh, Kelly, this is so great. I'm so looking forward to doing more of this work with you over the next year, blah, blah, blah. And, um, and I just remember feeling very empty. 
after the session was over and I got to my car and I threw my bags on the passenger seat and I, I sat down, I slammed the door and I was just like, I am so over this. I just shouted. I'm so over this. And, and like I said, everything went well. So the only thing that I felt was the problem was that I was having the same conversation 30 years ago. And so I really felt like if we, if we had made any efforts or any improvement in this work, I wasn't seeing it. And it was frustrating me because I felt like I know I'm not the only one who's been doing this work for the last 30 years. And so why is it that I'm still having diversity 101 conversations with people in their mind, they're being blown about it. Um, you know, and so I was frustrated. I was like, well, maybe what I'm doing is not working. Maybe I need to do something altogether different. And so I was ready to literally just walk away from the field altogether. And I, I'm not sure if you know, but um, I started a theater company in 2017. No, I did and, not. No, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, and the theater company is all about, you know, doing social justice theater, putting it on stage, because I believe that performance and story really... Um, conjures empathy and compassion in ways yes. that you're doing a workshop with flip chart and markers and PowerPoint. It just doesn't do the same, right? Unless you're introducing story into that workshop. So, um, so I was finding so much joy and so much connection and so much, you know, resurrection, frankly, in doing this work in the theater that I was ready to pull away altogether from consulting in this work in, um, in, in this kind of environment and, and then just focus purely in the theater realm. Um, but then this job came available in November and a colleague contacted me and she was like, it's only interim, you know, you can do it for a couple of months and if you love it, you can stay, but if you, you know, hate it, then it's only interim. Right. And so, um, so I, I, and, I, and five months later, you're still interim. <laughs> no, I, get to... I am not. I am not. <laughs> right. No, but, but you know, I'll come to the university stuff in a minute. But you're so uh, right. And, you know, my cynicism actually, and I don't want to qualify that because my listeners will think, okay, no matter all the good, he just finds the bad. Uh, it, it actually <laughs> comes from a friend of mine who does some uh, diversity and equity work in the U.S. And she told me, she started a big program for a bunch of leaders early last year in January, which was supposed to go till about November, working them through everything, looking at board decisions, recruitment, how they hire, what kind of questions or how, what talent pool do they seek, everything. And then mm -hmm. when George Floyd happened in June, uh, they, she got a call and said, you know, we need to stop this engagement because it's very controversial given the current situation. And her jaw dropped and said, you guys started this to be proactive about it. And now you're actually stopping it to be reactive. I mean, this just doesn't make sense. Yeah. And they said, we'll pick it up. And, uh, and our whole thing to me was, this is when we need to double down. This is when we need to, you, you, are, you are on the right track, don't stop. Yeah. And it just, so, so she was so demotivated. She said, I, I, I question the intention with what they started to begin with, Yeah. right? And I don't know, I mean, I mean, I'm hoping the conversations that are happening now actually lead to it. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, uh, sort of, I hope to do. I mean, even if it moves the needle 20%, that's still 20% more than it was, right? Indeed. Uh, yeah. yeah. I think what I'm discovering is that at a minimum, people are becoming more racially literate. 
right? So they they know right. what language they have. Their their language is being, um, or their vocabulary is expanding, um, and their ability to understand some of the concepts that people have been talking about for generations. Um, they're they're now just starting to get it. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so so while I'm encouraged by that. There's also a lot of performative stuff that's happening too. And there's a lot of people who are chasing the dollar. You know, I, I remember um, being surprised at how many people who I thought were, um, were squarely situated in things like, you know, um, international business or something like that <clears throat> and shied away from conversations of race suddenly becoming you know, wanting to position themselves as experts in the conversation. That's right. Break. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, every intercultural, a lot of intercultural people I know became uh, race experts as well. And I was like, exactly. yeah, well, you know, there's a subtle and significant difference between those two areas of conversation and even the skill of holding those conversations. Oh, but, absolutely. Uh -huh. And and that's part of why I stayed involved in CTAR for so long because I constantly wanted to push the envelope and say, just because you work from nation to nation, sometimes that's a privilege, right? You know, when we talk about economic privilege being a part of this. And so if I've been a trailing spouse and lived in the Netherlands, you know, for 15 years or something like that, and I come back and suddenly I'm an interculturalist, that means nothing. <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to really kind of unpacking what race issues look like, especially yeah. the depth of what race issues look like um, in the United States, right? Yeah. And yeah. so to claim that you can have any real understanding of the, the, the impact and, and some people were approaching the conversation with, well, it's, it's, you know, as simple as skin color. No, that's not what it is. It's so much more than just skin color. Um, right. There are some people, you know, who are in my family, much lighter complected with light eyes, you know, green or blue eyes, who still experience issues of race and racism because they identify as black. So um, it's not, it, you know, there is colorism and then there is racism. <laughs> yeah, no, that is so true. Yeah, and, and coming back to that, yeah, absolutely agree with you. And, and coming back to what you were saying earlier, there's an increased literacy on it, and people are aware. And, and uh, I, I like the way you frame it. Uh, there's there's another very more commonly used expression. People have become more woke, which <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, I, I know what you think, but sometimes I cringe at using the term, you know, the woke yeah. culture, but uh, because a lot, a lot of it is performative, in my opinion. Yes. Yeah. So when I saw your LinkedIn post uh, late last year, early this year, when I saw that you had joined the university, one of the first things that went through my mind, because I have I've been obviously tracking you on social media and all of that, is this is Kelly trying to make change in an institution from within. I think this is where she's going to make an impact and wants to move the needle. That, that's what went through my mind. So tell me if I was right, Kelly. <laughs> you know me too well. You know me too well. That's why that's she took it. <laughs> exactly right. 
And it's so funny because I told I told my husband, I said, here's the perfect opportunity. I've been telling organizations, I've been working with them for years. I've been saying, this is what we need to do in order to really implement inclusion, to truly foster inclusion embedded in the in the fiber and the DNA of an institution. And and I said, I don't want to to have to, to go back into a workplace and have five layers of leadership between myself and the ability to implement change. Right. So when I, when I saw the opportunity to take on this position, be within the president's leadership team and directly report to the president, I was like, I have to, I have to seriously explore this because this would provide me with the opportunity to not just, to not just um, talk talk it and do some training, but I get to set strategy for the entire institution and work with, you know, the department heads and faculty and the board and the president with really how to implement and, and embed inclusion and, and access into the university and equity, you know? So you're right. That's exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I, I sort of figured because I was just thinking, it must be so frustrating because for me, sitting outside the U.S., having friends there, doing all this work, and, and for years they've been saying it, then George Floyd happened, Black Lives Matter, it suddenly came, and then the needle's just moving so slowly. And, and like I said earlier, right, it's a whole change management piece. And often in consulting, we are just one small piece. We, yeah. we give an input or an advice. And I was yes. thinking... Kelly's going to rock it. She's going to go in. And if, if you remember, I even posted a message to you on LinkedIn saying, congratulations on the new adventure. I'm sure you're going to do this. There's going to be yeah. changes there. Uh, but, yeah. but so how are you finding it? Is, is it? is it as you have thought it to be? Is it because I think the timing is right, right? So if they brought in someone like you, that means the institution is in that space where they actually want to do it. Yeah, I have to say that the reason why I accepted the position permanently versus just interim was because I saw that it was a priority for the board of directors. It was a priority for the president who I was working with. Um, and, and, and there was such an eagerness on the part of the departments and, and faculty to reach out to say, how can we do this? I had one of the faculty um, leaders reach out and say, you know, we want to, to really explore what does it mean to decolonize our curriculum? How do we decolonize our syllabi? And I was like, oh, oh my goodness, this is so exciting because people are asking, how do I do this? So then now I don't have to come in and say, you need to be doing, right? They're already coming to me saying, we know we need to do, can you assist us in doing it? Um, and so it's been it's been very exciting. I will say that you know everything hinges on the leadership. And currently, right. our our the president who hired me in for the position is interim. We have a new president who has just been named, and this person will take on their position in July. Um, and you know I, I don't know enough about them in order to to know what their commitment will be, what their approach to this work will be, and 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 what the priority level will be of uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. As I said, I know it's really important to the board. So I feel like it will still remain a high priority. Where I'm concerned is if our approach to this work and how to do it will be in alignment. 
because right. that that position will be the one that could either um, unleash me and allow me to do all of the necessary work that needs to be done, but they could also provide an, a significant barrier to the work that must be done as well. Yeah, they can so, constrain you as well, right? Yeah. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah no, I think it, you're absolutely correct. It comes with the leadership, but I think that experience of even in five months and, and what I'm hearing from you is the whole thing has moved from a reactive to a proactive where people are coming to you and saying, hey, how do I do this? Versus, yeah. you know, I, I love that example you just gave. So yeah. overall, but obviously you put your consulting practice on hold to do this for, for a while. Uh, and you always have that, you have plan B. <laughs> uh, you know, when, when I was hired on, um, I informed them that I had some contracts because I had no intention to go into a full-time position ever again. I mean, I, I thought I was going to retire from consulting. Um, and so when this opportunity came along, I mean, I had still accepted contracts well through December of this year. Right. So I do have some contracts, right? Right now I'm in a, in a, in a heavy consulting and university space. Um, I think that on the other side of July or other side of June, June 15th or so, things will lighten up for me again. And then the work becomes, you know, a couple of quarterly things through until December. So, and then I will likely, you know, cause part of my arrangement was that I wasn't going to stop consulting, but I would be really mindful of the time that I'm consulting. And so, um, I think that what will end up happening is that I'll just do less true institutional change consulting um, that I have been doing, like being embedded and working for several years with one particular client. Now I'm only interested after December in doing like speaking engagements, you know, one hour type of thing. Um, yeah. So we'll see if those come. Um, because there was a time when I wouldn't even accept the speaking engagements. I'm like, you want me to talk for 45 minutes? No, that's not going to smooth the needle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And now I'm like, I only got time for 45 minutes. <laughs> that's all I have. Yeah. But it's yeah. an inter interesting place to be. So, yeah. Okay. So there's a lot of stuff happening uh, out in the world, in your world, with what you're doing. What's your aspiration? What do you, what do you want the world to look like when it comes to all of this in the next year or so? How much, what would, be like that, that satisfies you okay the needles are really moved genuinely <laughs> you know that is a fantastic question Vinay and I, I'm not sure that I have a really <laughs> a really good answer outside of the fact you know, because for so long, we've just been trying to get people to do the work, right? And so looking out ahead, you know, you just want, you want some level of change, but because change hasn't come, <laughs> you know, you're just like, I'll just keep trudging along because I don't, sooner or later, I'll know what that looks like. I think that um, if I, if I could dream a world of where I think things will be on the other side of this is, I think that we will be at a place where organizations are not as afraid to, to, to um, name the work that must be done. I think that if we are doing it right and well, we won't be creating so many enemies with straight white men, but that they will see themselves as partners in this work versus the problem of this work. Right. Um, and, and, and that's been really important to me because I wanna say for so long, um, one of the things that I would get, one of the comments I would get from many of my sessions was someone would raise their hand and say, you know, I think that white men are being targeted now. I think that we're the ones 
that are, you know, uh, being oppressed, right? And and in, in large part, I think that that's what led to, you know, the Charleston protests, you know, because what they were saying was, you will not replace us. Um, and so, you know, whether it is justifiable from, from the perspective of marginalized populations or not is a non-issue, but there is something we all know what it feels like to be excluded. And right. if, if what these people were saying was that they feel excluded in the conversation of inclusion and they feel like they're going to lose something, then we have to do a better job of, of saying, this is not a zero sum, this is a both and. And I don't know that we've done that as well. And yeah. so I think that success on the other side would be that everybody sees the benefit and the need for this work and welcomes it. Well, that, by, by the way, that's a huge needle movement, right? Because that is actually massive evolving of thinking and... Uh, I don't ask for much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. But, but, but it's so true, though, because it's fairness for everybody. Just because we were treated unfairly, it's now your turn to get treated unfairly, is not going to do anything to the conversation. It's, mm-hmm. it's, uh, and, and I think it's so true. But, but, you know, something that for me, what I'd like to see a year from now is use a phrase that you just used. We get more comfortable with naming it, but and now, but we're we're done. We're no longer discussing the naming it, but we're now focusing on the changing it, whatever yes. it might be, right? Even if it's one step towards that, and if more people have done that, and I and I don't mean individuals. I think to me, when I come down to the individual level, mm-hmm. no matter what, everybody at a human level connects. Uh, mm-hmm. But at an institution, I like what you said, the, the habits, the processes just reinforce certain things. If, if you at least say, these are habits that are not good for our organization, for our institution, we need to mm-hmm. change it. If we get yeah. to that level, I think that's better than where we are today. Yeah. yeah. And one of the things, you know, uh, you know just really quickly to, to give an idea of what that could look like, one of the things I'm working on in the university is the tenure process. You know, you know, once you receive tenure, that means that, you know, you have a job basically for as long as you want the job that you, you can retire from that position. And so, um, so that's how sometimes you get, you get, um, you know, bias embedded into an institution is if you've got these same people who have been there for a long, 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 long time, and there is no recourse, um, then, then we have to start looking at that tenure process and what does it take to achieve tenure. And so that tenure needs to be something that also includes some level of a demonstration of an inclusive teaching style, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah so, I, remember, I remember my time from academic days. Uh, don't yeah. mess with this professor. They're tenured. Nothing is going to happen, right? Exactly. <laughs> so. Exactly. And so we, you know, when we talk about, you know, establishing cultural norms, then that becomes, you know, um, a cultural norm. You know, if you've got the, the dominant who have tenure are those that are constantly pushing back for any kind of organizational change, then, you know, you get stuck, right? So Kelly, Kelly, no- I have a lot of respect for you for trying to fight that battle. My God. God, Kelly. 
Yeah, could you you couldn't pick up a, a smaller piece to fight with, huh? You just picked the ten-year battle right off the bat. I know. Oh wow. I know. I know. Well, you know, we're also you know trying to create um, an inclusive uh, process for review, right? So um, making sure that when people are going up, now there may be nothing that we can do about those who are, have been there now for forever, but those that are that are are applying for tenure currently, then we can make sure that we create an inclusive arm or an inclusive process that um, teases out some of their ability to be, um, you know, the types of instructors that we'd like to see in the future at the institution. So. Oh yeah, absolutely. But I'm getting a quick flag that says we've been going on for almost 45 minutes, and I'm oh, thinking, no. and I'm thinking we can keep going. But uh, I know okay. you've got to run. But, but a couple of quick questions. So okay. these, these are interesting times, uh, you know, pandemic and all of that. So how have you kept yourself motivated in this? Right? We talked about all the stuff that the cynics and all of that and things needles not moving. So how do you keep yourself motivated? How do you keep yourself? positive through all of this? Um, because I want to breathe. And I feel like I've been holding my breath for the last four plus years. I feel mm. like I have just been stifled. And so I feel like the thing that motivates me is I want to breathe. I want to be able to, to feel like my kids can breathe. I want to feel like we are, are moving towards this the promise of who we can be as humans. Um, and so if that means that I have to stay in the conversation and continue to fight the good fight, then so be it. But um, yeah, I just, I, I knew what it felt like to not feel as if there was hope and my anxiety level was high, you know, my physical, you know, my physical health was bad. Um, you know, I was resorting to lots of things to cope, you know, and, and so knowing that if people are willing to have the conversation, then I am encouraged. And, and if they're willing to have that conversation, then I'm willing to be in the conversation with them. It was just when it was feeling like people kept trying to stifle me. Is right. When, right. When I was at my worst. So hopefully not getting into that car, throwing your bag and saying, oh, my God, what the hell is this? Same conversation. Yeah. It feels like deja vu from 30 years ago, right? Yes. Yeah. No, <laughs> yep. but that, that is so, so cool. Uh, you know, so we have a segment on our podcast called RWL, you know, which is read, watch, and listen. What recommendations do you have around the work that you're doing? Obviously, your book that you wrote some time ago, uh, we'll put that in our uh, uh, notes for our listeners, but anything else that you want to suggest? Right. So um, I'm in the process of reading a book called Cast by Isabel Wilkerson right now. And um, I hope I said that right. Isabel Wilkerson. I might have named the wrong person, but I'm reading Cast. <laughs> and, um, and it is a fantastic book on the concept of what um, what connects places like India and South Africa and the United States is not 
just a conversation about race, but what caste looks like. And it's really a provocative exploration of what connects us and disconnects us. And she, she talks about, um, you know, uh, Dr. King's encounters when he went to India for the first time uh, and, 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 and being invited as an untouchable, right? Um, and so he first was less like, I'm a what? And, and then the more that he heard more about the experience of the untouchables, he was just like, you know what? Then I think that every Negro in the United States is an untouchable. And so this concept of uh, the caste system, I think, was is a really provocative way to explore this conversation going forward. Another one of my favorite books is My Grandmother's Hands, and it's, it's by a man by the name of Resma Menachem. And mm-hmm. um, uh, it's racialized trauma and the pathway to mending our hearts and bodies. Um, it's a fantastic book. I absolutely highly recommend it. Um, in terms of what I'm watching, <laughs> I, I try to get away from the work when I watch television. And so right. I <laughs> so some binge watching some shows, huh? Yeah, I'm just binge watching some completely, you know, irrelevant stuff you know, things that don't have anything at all to do with the work that we're doing um, specifically. But I, what I have found is that whatever show that I'm willing to invest my time in has to have a diverse cast. I'm, I'm being very intentional about watching only product, products that have an incredibly diverse cast because I think that it's lazy to do otherwise. Right. Um, and so, so that's my commitment to what I'm willing to watch. Brilliant. So this has been awesome. Great to have you. And I'm thinking uh, we got to keep the, keep this conversation going, but then what we can do is we can do a part two, maybe in a few months. (laughs) And when that needle has moved for both of us, right. In the work that we're doing, hopefully we'll have more case studies and stuff like that, but this has been great and uh, love the work that you're doing. And uh, I'll be rooting for you on the tenure conversations changing that one good luck with that but i but in the nicest ways because i think if you can make start to have those useful conversations that can be a case study for so many other organized institutions right yeah that's brilliant excellent kelly take care stay safe thank you for joining you bet thank you so much ah what a cool conversation with kelly You know, I could have kept this conversation going on for a while longer, at least. But I think we need to get her back here in maybe about a year or so and see where this conversation has gone. Uh, You know, I I like the fact that she's a lot more optimistic than I am, particularly around this. And this doesn't just become a checkbox as we get back into our worlds. Okay, uh, a bit of a heavy conversation but much needed so folks keep that feedback coming i hope everybody stays safe and see you all and listen to you and listen to us in the next episode over and out